Well, good morning. I don't have a lot of uh, memories for some reason of um, the years between one and five. When I was five years old, I just don't, I just don't remember a lot of what happened, but I do have one memory, and I can't even be sure that it's a real memory, but I believe it, it is. It was a memory of when I was about three years old. I was with my father, and we were standing looking at a fire in a fireplace. And my father, who is a minister, used the occasion to talk to me about hell, of all things. He said, you know, this is, this is what uh, hell is going to be like, a place of fire. But then he said, you don't have to go there, you can go to heaven. And then he quoted John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him will not perish but have eternal life. Back then we used the King James Version of the Bible with the believeths and the thous and things like that. I wasn't frightened by this discussion, although apparently it did make an impact on me. But this was, I think, the first time in my life that I heard the verse John 3.16, the first of thousands of times when I would hear that particular verse, which I think is the most famous verse in the Bible. Also, it was the first of probably hundreds of times that I heard talks about or someone refer to heaven as well as hell. Now, I am a few months away or a couple months away, even less than that, of my sixth decade of life. And um, as I've grown older, I think I've become just a little bit more open-minded about a lot of things, and I've also uh, considered various things that I used to believe that I don't anymore. And recently, I was having a discussion with someone about this, and the question was raised, do you still believe that Jesus is the only way to heaven? That that's really it, and that if a person doesn't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that they, they won't end up in heaven, because that's certainly what my dad believed, and he wanted to make sure none of us missed it. He didn't want any of us going to that other place. And as I reflected on this question that was thrown at me, I realized that my conviction about this is greater and not less. I'm more convinced now than ever in my life. In fact, I told this person, I believe that I would bet everything I have, literally everything, and I'm not a betting person, but if I were, I'd bet everything on this idea that God sent his son to be the savior of the world and the only way that anyone will ever get to heaven will be through him. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He claimed to be the door. He claimed to be the good shepherd. He, he claimed to be the, 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 the shepherd that would lead everyone to life if we put our trust in him. He said, my sheep hear my voice. I know them, they answer me, and I give to them eternal life. But the idea of another place is just a hard concept for us, and I think we struggle with it. 
Today we're gonna wrap up this series called The Story of Us. We've been talking about basically the 4,000 years of recorded biblical history from Adam and Eve through the whole Bible, and then if you extend it 2,000 more years, we're talking about God's interaction with humanity for the last 6,000 years. That's what this series has been about. And I'm convinced everything revolves around that person, Jesus. Everything, all of history, it's the watershed he is determines everything. We talked about the fact that our purpose for being created or God's purpose for creating us was to have a relationship with him. That's what it's about. And we talked about how there was a problem, how sin came into the world and put a wedge between people and God. It's a wedge that continues to this day. We're separate from God. We talked about God's plan. God had it in his heart and mind even before he created us. And knowing that we, as people with a free will, would choose against him, he came up with a plan to fix it, that he would send his son to be the savior of the world. And then we focused one week on Jesus being the promised one, how really there was no other, no other solution I, I believe that God could have even come up with. I mean, that's a hard thing to say. You'd say God can do everything. I don't believe there was any other solution that fits God's character than to send his son to be the savior of the world, the sinless one, satisfying the justice of God by taking upon himself the penalty for what you and I have done wrong, and then rising again from the dead and becoming our savior. We talked about the people of God and how we are now the body of Christ on this earth, how Jesus, after he rose from the dead, returned to his father, but we are now his hands and feet, and we're the mouth of Christ in this world. And then last week, I talked about the physical return of Christ. Jesus said he's coming back, and I think it's gonna be soon. But we really can't talk about the story of us and this whole biblical story of humanity without talking about eternity and what happens next. This last event in the story of us is what I would call paradise or punishment. We believe that those who are believers in Christ will experience an eternity that's absolutely more wonderful than we can imagine. More beautiful, more glorious, more enjoyable than we can imagine. But we also believe, and this is the hard part, that some who don't have a relationship with Christ will be separated from him. And in a very real sense, it's out of necessity because they'll still be in their sin when they die. Their sins have not been removed from, uh, from them, and therefore, they're disqualified from being in the presence of a holy God. My takeaway today, therefore, is this, that everyone will spend an eternity somewhere. Everybody will spend an eternity somewhere. Now, I encourage you to have an open mind related to this subject. Again, it's, it's not an easy one. But when God created people, he created us in his own image, as we've talked about. And part of what I think that means, to be created in the image of God, is that we were created to be eternal beings. God was not interested in just having a 70-year relationship with us and then we die, or an 80-year or 100 if due to strength. He wasn't interested in just, just having this short relationship with us, a God who lives forever. He wanted to have a relationship with us that would last throughout eternity. And not only that, he's looking forward to blessing us. 
The very grace that saved us is a grace he wants to extend to us for all eternity, and we have not seen anything yet. The Apostle Paul penned these words in Ephesians 2, verses 5 through 7. He said, you're saved by grace. I've mentioned many times that to be saved means to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. You are saved by grace. Grace is a, a gift. It's something you cannot earn, something you can't merit. And so by the kindness of God, you are delivered from the penalty of your sin. Together with Christ, he also raised us up and seated us in the heavens. In other words, in the mind of God, just like Jesus rose again and is already in heaven, in the mind of God, so are we. It's a done deal in the mind of God. Though we're physically not there, it's a done deal. Goes on to say, so that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, so that in the, in the ages to come, he might continue to, to pour out his grace on us, the undeserved favor, and it'll be in the form of kindness. He's gonna continue to be kind to us in so many ways that we cannot even imagine. Of course, Paul even said that. The mind cannot even ma imagine what God has in store for us. How wonderful it's gonna be. But not everyone will be there. Everyone will spend an eternity somewhere, but not all there. Now, I realize that if we were to rely just upon human reasoning, the idea of a place called hell would not fit into any of our imaginations. None of us would want such a place, I don't think. And yet, it's one of these things I would consider to be an inconvenient truth in the Bible, something that I think is clearly taught something that, that Jesus talked about, and if we believe that the Bible's true, and if we believe what Jesus said is true, it, you can't really get past it. And at some point we have to decide, am I gonna do things based on what I can reason through? And I know it's, again, I think it's hard. We had someone once on the worship team here that, um, was here one Sunday when I talked about hell, which I don't talk about this much. This isn't what I'd call a fire and brimstone church. But I talked about it one week, and this person said, if this is the kind of church that believes that such a place exists, that God could possibly send someone to such a place, I can't believe in that God, and I can't be part of this church, and the person left, and I, I understand that. I can, I can understand the, the, the difficulty with whole, this whole thing. And yet I think we don't give God credit for the length that he went to to make sure no one has to go there. It's not God's will that any perish. Now, Hell was something that wasn't originally created for people. It was created for the devil and his angels. Jesus was speaking about the last judgment in Matthew chapter 25 and verse 41. He said that God would say this to some people on this judgment day, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, and they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal Life. Now, these are the words of Jesus. I, I don't know how to get past this. I don't know how that it gets any clearer than this, this idea that there would be this judgment, that it would be eternal. And that God 
was going to, for one reason or another, have to send some people to this other place, but it seems to be the case. There's both this eternal judgment and there's this thing called eternal life. It comes down simply to this, that those who are part of Satan's kingdom in this life will join him in the future, and those who are part of Christ's kingdom will join him in the future. But again, it's hard. British philosopher Bertrand Russell struggled with what Jesus had to say about the subject of hell. He said this, anyone who threatens people with eternal punishment as Jesus did is inhumane. That was his perspective. Jesus was wrong. He was threatening people with this. And yet I would suggest it's more inhumane if you know the way out and you don't tell people about it. Part of the reason we struggle with this, with this, by the way, is that we don't understand how sinful we are and we don't understand how holy God is. We don't realize the sinfulness of our humanity, that we're kind of, we've been kind of corrupted, that our words, our thoughts, our deeds are sinful. The, 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 the thoughts of our hearts, if everybody knew what you think, day in and day out, what, would they even associate with you? I wouldn't want you reading everything I think. I don't think you'd want to be near me. <laughs> We're more sinful than we think we are. And God is more holy than we realize he is. And he found a way. I agree with Jonathan Edwards who said, if we had a true spiritual awareness, we would not be amazed at hell's severity, but at our own depravity. I want to approach the subject here today of paradise or punishment in a little bit different way than I usually do. I want to approach it in a Q&A format. I want to raise some questions, and then I want to answer the questions. I'm not suggesting by this approach, by the way, that I know all the answers. I just want to point you to what the Bible has to say about it. I think for those of you that believe the Bible's true, I think you'll be strengthened in your understanding. For those of you that have trouble believing the Bible is true, at least you'll know what it says. And so I wanna raise a number of questions and then answer them this morning. So it's a little bit different format. The first question I'd like to address is this. Is the idea of an eternal judgment a New Testament concept only? You see, some people have looked at this and said, how come in the Old Testament there's no reference to hell? If it's such a, an important concept, I mean, obviously we'd all agree it's something that, that you can't overlook. If it's true, why is it missing from the Old Testament? Why, why is there no reference to a place called hell? And there's some truth to that statement. The word hell does not in, appear in the Old Testament, but the concept does. In the Old Testament, there are a number of references that indicate that people live forever or they live beyond the grave. There are also, though, some references that talk about the eternal judgment. Daniel, who was an official in Babylon's court and was a prophet, wrote this in Daniel 12 and verse 2. He said, many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to shame and eternal contempt. He was talking about the final resurrection. He said, in that day when Christ comes back to reign, which is what he was talking about in the chapters leading up to it, he said, there's gonna be this resurrection. Some are gonna go and have eternal life, and some will not. 
what he describes as eternal contempt, or the word means shame. Here's another question, what will heaven and hell be like? And I think we have misconceptions concerning both of them. I think when people think of heaven, first of all, they think of that we're gonna be like on a cloud with a harp, playing kumbaya, <laughs> you know? I don't know, we just have this image in our mind that, you know, that's heaven and we're gonna go up into heaven. And that's not exactly accurate. Our eternal destiny, if we're believers in Christ, is actually gonna be on the new earth. What we consider or what we call heaven is actually gonna be the new earth that we're gonna be on. And that, to me, provides a lot of insight in terms of what it's gonna be like. Because I kinda like this world except for the bad parts. I don't like the mosquitoes. I really don't like the spiders. I'm not crazy about the poisonous snakes, although I can live with, well, not really live with them. We live in a world that's scarred by sin, but what if all the bad things about this creation were gone? What if only the beauty remained? What if it was just a, a world that was unscarred by sin? That's what it's gonna be like for eternity. John, one of Jesus' closest friends, described it this way as he received a revelation from Jesus. In Revelation 21, beginning in verse one, he wrote, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea no longer existed. The reason it's gone, the sea, by the way, is that it is a picture of division. The waters divided the peoples, and so that division's gonna be gone is the point. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief crying and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. It's all the good, none of the bad, everything you love about this beautiful world will remain, but none of the bad. In chapter 22, skipping ahead, he talks a little bit more about it. He said, then he showed me the river of living water sparkling like crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, or Jesus, down the middle of the broad street of the city. The tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. Night will no longer exist, and people will not need lamp light or sunlight, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And that continues the story. Now, I included this part, or these references, because if you read those references, they sound familiar to another place in the Bible. They sound familiar to Genesis chapters one and two, where we read about a garden, and we read about the tree of life, and we read about some trees. And when I read this description, by the way, it appears to me that we're gonna be able to eat. It's a tree with 12 kinds of fruit growing there. You say, what do you mean eat? Yeah, I don't, I don't understand that. Of course, Jesus ate. He had his glorified body. He was with his disciples. He said, give me something to eat. It's not like he had to eat. It was purely for enjoyment. And I suspect it won't go to your waste. 
It's gonna be a wonderful place. But it's a picture of the renewal of the Garden of Eden, fixing everything that went wrong. That's our eternal destiny. What about hell? Well, Jesus used a real city or a real valley in his day to describe what hell would be like. In the time of Christ, there was a valley called the Valley of Hinnom, or another name for it was Gehenna, and it's the word we use for hell. There was an actual valley there. In Israel's history, about seven or 800 years before Christ, this, this particular valley was used for something that was really bad. A scholar by the name of W.A. Elward describes Gehenna, this valley. The place became notorious because of the idolatrous practices which were carried out there in the days of kings Judah, I'm sorry, Judah's kings, Ahaz and Manasseh especially involving the heinous crime of infant sacrifice associated with Molech ceremonies. Hundreds of years before Christ was born, this valley was used to sacrifice children to this false god. Then, this valley was turned into something else leading up to the time of Christ. It was turned into a garbage dump. It was turned into a place where they burned the bodies of criminals. It became this real disgusting place so that in the time between the Old and New Testaments, you may or may not know that there are about 400 years that are a gap between the Old and New Testaments. During that period of time, Gehenna became an illustration of the eternal judgment to come called hell. And that's how it was in the time of Christ. Jesus was familiar with that. The people were familiar with that. One of the characteristics of this particular valley and then in the time of Christ is it was not just a garbage dump and it was not just used to dump disgusting things and human remains. In addition to this, there was one other characteristic of this valley. It was always on fire. It burned constantly. It could be described as a lake of fire. Jesus used this to describe what hell was going to be like in Matthew 13, 41 to 43. He said, the Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom everything that causes sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will throw them into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their Father's kingdom. Anyone who has ears should listen. Sometimes Jesus actually used the term Gehenna. Here he just describes it. Now what is it like? Well, here are some of the descriptions. It's described as a blazing furnace or a lake of fire. In Revelation 20 and verse four, we read, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. It's also a place of darkness. Now this might seem odd, because if you think about it, well, wait a minute, a fire produces light. I think this is gonna be the one place in all of the universe where God will not be, and God is the source of light. In Matthew 22, and verse 13, Jesus is telling a parable, and part of the parable goes this way. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot, and throw him into the outer darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And of course, then there's another description, weeping and gnashing of teeth. What does that mean? 
A scholar by the name of Barbiera describes weeping suggests sorrow and grief or emotional agony of the lost in hell and grinding of one's teeth speaks of pain, physical agony in hell. It will be a place also of torment and restlessness. I hate restlessness, like when you're trying to sleep but you can't. In Revelation 14 and 11, we read, and the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night. So it raises the question immediately, who's gonna end up there? It could be worded a variety of different ways, but the simplest answer is this, it's anyone whose name is not in the book of life. When it comes down to Judgment Day, a book is gonna be open called the Book of Life, and if anyone's name is not written in that, Revelation 20 and verse 15, and anyone not found written in the Book of Life was thrown into the lake of fire. Now you say, well, how do you get your name in that book then? I wanna make sure it's, it's in that book. It's, again, what we've talked about, what I always talk about, Jesus, is the way, the truth, and the life. God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish in Gehenna, but instead will have or receive eternal life. We're told how we get eternal life. It's by making Jesus Christ the object of our trust. We welcome him as our savior. Now, some of you wonder, I'm sure, what about babies who die? Will they go to heaven? And what about people who have never heard? There's a lot of indication in the Bible that babies who die will indeed make it to heaven, both in the Old and New Testaments. For example, in the Old Testament, King David's son that was born through his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba died. That, that baby, their first child died. Now, the second one was Solomon who reigned, but their, their first child died. And when the child was, had died, David said about this child, he can't come back to me anymore, but I will go to him. David clearly had the understanding that one day I would see my child again, and I think that that is indeed the case. In the New Testament, Jesus has said, unless you become like children, you'll never see the kingdom of heaven. And so many have concluded that means that if you're a child, you will go to heaven. And no one knows what that age of accountability is. Some have suggested it's as old as 13. Before you were considered an adult in the Jewish world, we don't know that. But what we know is that God in his grace is, is gracious and kind. What about people, though, who haven't heard? They haven't had an opportunity. Well, nobody is gonna be judged and sent to hell because they have not heard the gospel. No one is gonna end up there because of that, but they will end up there if they're still in their sin when they die. And we are accountable for what God has revealed to us, and I'm convinced that if people respond to what God has already revealed, then he'll give them more revelation until they can respond to the gospel. Paul wrote in Romans 1, 18 to 20, he said, for God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Let me stop for a moment, but this is indicating that people through their sinful life 
and their love of the dark suppress the truth. Verse 19, since that which is known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. God has revealed that he exists to everybody on the planet if they have eyes to see the world in which we live. He's revealed himself. And if people respond to that, I'm convinced he will give them more revelation. In the Old Testament, we read, if you seek him, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. If you respond to what he reveals to you, he'll give you more revelation. What I know for sure is that God is just and, and kind and loving and he will always do the just thing, the right thing. Now, do people go directly to this new earth or... Do they go to heaven when they die? What exactly happens? Well, this depends on where you are in terms of your faith. Christians, when we die, we go to be with Christ, and that is what I think people think of immediately when they think of heaven. You say the person went up to heaven. We go to be with Jesus Christ as soon as we die. Paul understood this in Philippians 1, 23 and 24. He said, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for you. Paul was in prison when he wrote this. He thought he was gonna die. And he said, I'd really like to die because it would mean I'll see Jesus. But I realized I have more work to do. Another place he said, absent from the body is present with the Lord. Now we won't have our new body yet. That comes later. But I think when we die, we go in immediately in the presence of, of Christ. What about those who don't know Christ? Well, they're down in what's called in the Old Testament Sheol, or the place of the dead, and they're in the part of Sheol called Hades. Now, if you want to know what that's like, read Luke 16. I believe Luke 16, by the way, is not a parable. I think it's a real story because it's the only parable, if it is one, that includes names. I don't, think it's a, I don't think it's a parable. I think it's the real story. It describes Hades. Here's what we need to understand. In the Old Testament, before people died, there was the place of the dead that people went, both the righteous and the unrighteous, believers in God and those who weren't. Only the place of the dead had two compartments. One was called Hades, and the other was called Paradise. And Luke 16 describes that there was a gap between the two. And when someone died in the Old Testament, they went down there, or wherever that is, to Sheol. Why? Well, it's because their sin had not yet been forgiven. Christ had not yet died on the cross, and so their, their sin was not removed yet, so they could not go into the presence of God. But as soon as Jesus rose from the dead, I believe paradise was emptied. This is why there's one odd story in the Gospels that describes after Jesus died that righteous people were seen walking around Jerusalem. They were people who died who had been in paradise, who were on their way up to be with Christ. But Hades hasn't been emptied yet. It's a temporary holding place. And as I read earlier in the book of Revelation, it says one day Hades will be dumped into hell, and that is the eternal destination. So let me ask just uh, two more short questions here, or one last question here. It's the most important one, I suppose. Well, what must I do to be saved? 
You don't want to get, again, you don't want to get this thing wrong. My point isn't here to scare everyone. I have no interest in scaring people. And a lot of ministers, by the way, do this. They scare you into behaving. You can't behave your way into heaven. You can't behave your way into heaven. We need a savior. What must we do to be saved? Again, what does it mean to be saved? It means to be delivered from the penalty of your sin. Paul answered it in Acts 16 and verse 31 when someone asked him the question. He said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. It was that simple. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved. Romans 10 and verse 13 says, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, will be delivered from the penalty of sin. There needs to come a point, and this is where some of you are, there needs to come a point in your life where you realize I've sinned against God, I can't fix it. I'm a sinner, I need a deliverer, I need a savior, and I, I want to put my trust in Jesus as God's solution to the problem. That's what it is, we put our trust in the risen Lord Jesus Christ to be our savior. He died for your sin, he paid the price in full. He was executed on your behalf so you could be declared not guilty, so you could be forgiven. The payment was made and when he rose from the dead it proved that God accepted the payment on our behalf. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you done that? Have you come to a point where you have reached out to Jesus Christ to be your savior? See, the problem we all face, and I've talked about this whole series, is sin separates, separates us from God. The solution is Jesus because of who he is, the, the son of God and God the son, and because of what he did, he died for us and rose again. And the response God is looking for is faith or trust. We make him the object of our trust. If you're already a believer here today, I think these thoughts that we've talked about here today should have us Really, it should impact us in a couple ways. Number one is it should motivate us to want to tell people about Christ. This is why Jesus said, go and preach the good news. You don't have to go there to this other place. And it's why as a church we're about this. But second, I think it's also a motive for holy living. Peter described that knowing that the judgment is coming and knowing that God hates certain things, what kind of people ought we to be in our holy living? It should indeed impact the way we live our lives. Let's pray. Father, uh, these are not easy things, and yet I see that you are a loving God, a just God, an amazing God, that it's not your will that any should perish, as Paul wrote, but all come to repentance. You want everyone to turn to Jesus, and yet I recognize, Lord, you won't force anyone to make that choice. Thank you for the promise that whoever calls in the name of the Lord will be saved, though, that that's the confidence we have. Because if our confidence was in being good, we'd never know where we stood. And deep down in our hearts, we all know none of us are good enough. Heaven's a perfect place. We're just not perfect people. But thank you for Jesus, that you declare us right or righteous through faith in him. And we're grateful for that. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.